Well, good morning, River Oak Church, and let me first of all say happy Mother's Day to all of our moms. I definitely want to say this is a day that we want to celebrate and thank the Lord for you, and so happy Mother's Day to all of our moms, especially in the season that we're in. Uh, many moms who are teachers who are not anticipating being teachers, um, and I know that this has been a, a kind of a hectic, stressful time, and so moms... Uh, thank you. Uh, you are a blessing from God, and we pray that you enjoy this day today with your family. I wish my mom a happy Mother's Day. I want to put up a picture. This is one of my favorite pictures of my mom. This is a picture of when I was uh, roughly eight, nine months old. I always give my mom a hard time about this picture uh, because I'm like, Mom, you, know, you don't look too happy, right? You, you've got the one child there. That's my brother who is six years older than I am. And she says to me, she says, Heath, you've always been a tool of sanctification in my life uh, from the Lord. And I said, well, I don't think you'll ever find that on a, on a Hallmark card that you are a tool of sanctification from the Lord. But she said, you know, you, you were that. And she said, you know, you were the hard one. Uh, had the Lord known, uh, you know, that, that if you would have been first, you would not have had a brother. There would have just been one of you. But because your brother was so good, uh, we felt led by the Lord to have another one. And in the Lord sense the humor, that was you. And so the picture there shows, I think, the look of um, weariness upon my mom. But happy Mother's Day to you, Mom, on this very special day. Happy Mother's Day to my wife, Amber, who the mom of our son, Tristan, obviously. And as I was leaving the house today, uh, Tristan said to me, Dad, uh, be sure to wish Mom a happy Mother's Day on camera. And so, again, I'm very thankful uh, for the mom that Amber is to our son. And so happy Mother's Day to all of our moms on this special day. If you've got your Bibles, I want to encourage you, uh, if you would, to turn with me to Psalm 16. We've been in this series of looking at the Psalms of David, and I pray you're encouraged in this. I know the Lord has really been stirring in my heart. The Lord has really been, you know, really just, just digging deep into areas. You know, it's, it's amazing how, you know, he can slow things down. It's amazing how he can hit the pause button in our lives, and I believe in those seasons how critical it is to be sensitive to the work that God is doing to our lives. As we talked about last week, fear and faith live real close to one another. And in seasons like these, I know that the enemy, I believe, is working overtime of trying to cast doubt and trying to cast fear. And so how critical it is that we as believers, we as followers of Christ, we who hold this book to be true, how critical it is, especially in these seasons, you know, that we rest in the promises uh, that we allow God's word to be what stabilizes us, that we allow this to be uh, our hope, what preserves us, as David says. And so I pray you're encouraged. I pray you're challenged as our emotions have a tendency to go in many different directions, how the book of Psalms addresses those emotions. And I'm so thankful for that. I'm so thankful for um, the honesty of David the vulnerability of David to allow us really insight into his feelings, into his struggles, into his doubts. And we saw it even last week in Psalm 27 of how, you know, he can, he can begin with great confidence, you know, in you, in you, Lord, I put my trust and how even before you even end the prayer. And I think we can identify with this, that confidence can be wavering. And so uh, again, I, I know the Lord has taken these passages and stirred in me. And I pray you're encouraged. The first week we looked at Psalm 40 as we looked at David crying out from the pit, not literally a pit. I believe he was speaking figuratively of the place that he was in, whether it was emotionally or psychologically or, or even spiritually. The next week we talked about the wilderness, how he is writing and, and resting in the promises of God. And I believe literally in the wilderness, running from the attacks of his son. Last week we looked at Psalm 27. And again, the fear and faith dynamic of, of how you can see him even moving in the midst of that psalm. But he always lands in faith. He always lands in the promise of God. And then this morning, 
Psalm 16. What a rich psalm. I mean, we could literally spend weeks, months. Honestly, we could spend years with these 11 verses of scripture and really just begin to scratch the surface of all that is here. Obviously, this is a messianic psalm as it speaks of the coming Messiah, as it speaks of the one who would not see corruption. And we'll get into that in just a moment. I want to encourage you that in the time that we're in, in the season that we're in, to fix our minds, the Bible tells us that, right? To set our minds upon truth, to meditate upon these things. I think sometimes when we hear the word meditate or we hear the word meditation, I think sometimes we can have even the wrong understanding of that. We think of Eastern meditation, which is really kind of the opposite of what God's word calls us to do. Eastern meditation is is kind of this idea of of the removal of things, the emptying of the mind. Really what God's word calls us to do is to feel the mind, to, to be intentional, to, 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 to daily, um, to, to, to put the truth of God's word into, our, to set our minds upon these things. And we want to do that. And I believe you see that with David as he sets his minds upon who God is. And because of who God is, who God is for him. We know as you follow through the book of 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, it's kind of the outside look of David's psalm gives us kind of the inside look of David's heart. You can kind of just follow through 1 Samuel 15. The Lord rejects Saul as king. 1 Samuel 16, Samuel, we know, anoints David to become king at 18. However, it's not until another 12 years before David would actually take the throne. 1 Samuel 17, a very famous chapter of scripture of David and Goliath, which is really where the jealousy of Saul begins, uh, really, and that leads all the way through 1 Samuel 24, 1 Samuel 26, where David is running, fleeing for his life from Saul. And it really all the way, all goes all the way to 1 Samuel 31, where Saul and his three sons fall on their soul, swords. And at the age of 30, David becomes king. It's a life that I think in some ways we can identify in the sense of you see Right, there were ups and downs, there were twists and turns. He had the promises of God, but at the same time, there are things that David experienced that he could have never planned for, and we can relate to that. But what you find in David is this. Rarely do you find the circumstances of David's life leading him away from God. Now, it doesn't mean he was always faithful. Obviously, we know that. We know the sins of David. We know the sin of adultery with Bathsheba, the sin that followed that of murder, of, of, of Uriah. We understand that. But what you find really in the trenches of his life, that when you find him going through these valleys, rather than finding someone running, fleeing from God, you actually find him drawing, running to God, not from God. So I pray that you're encouraged, challenged in the passage this morning. And I believe it all goes back to his view of God. There was such an understanding of David of, of who his God was the goodness of God. He was not running uh, to a mad God or a sad God. He was running to the place where there was fullness of joy is what the Bible says. And we see that in verse 11. In your presence is fullness of joy. David experienced that from an early age. And so here is a man that in the twists and turns of his life knew where his fulfillment was found, knew where his joy was found, knew where his protection was found. It was in the presence of his God, and we see that in his writing. Psalm 16, if you would, in reverence of reading God's word, stand with me as we read these 11 verses. Psalm 16, beginning in verse 1, the Bible says this, Preserve me, O God, for you I put my trust. O my soul, you have said to the Lord, you are my Lord. My goodness is nothing apart from you. 
As for the saints who are on the earth, they are the excellent ones, in whom is all my delight. Their sorrows shall be multiplied, who hasten after another God, lowercase g, their drink offerings of blood I will not offer, nor take up their names upon my lips. Listen to what he says in verse 5. O Lord, you are the portion of my inheritance, my cup. You maintain my lot. The lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. Yes, I have a good inheritance. I will bless the Lord who has given me counsel. My heart also instructs me in the night seasons. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be moved. Therefore, my heart is glad and my glory rejoices. My flesh also will rest in hope. For you will not leave my soul in Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. Verse 11, you will show me the path of life. In your presence, hear this this morning, in your presence is fullness of joy. And at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Join with me, if you would, as we go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we rest in these promises. Lord, we rest that in your presence there is fullness of joy of joy, that, Lord, you are the giver of life. You are the giver of life everlasting. Lord, we thank you for that, and we thank you that, Lord, even even reading these words 3,000 years ago, 1,000 years before the birth of Christ, we see the promise of Jesus. We see the promise of the one who was to come, a descendant of David, a king who would sit upon his throne for all of eternity, who would not see corruption, who would overcome it all. Lord, we thank you because it's in Christ this morning we rest and that we place our hope in. So Lord, this morning, through this technology, may you stir hearts, may you challenge hearts, may you convict hearts, may you draw your people closer to you and to those who may not know you. May you draw hearts to you, Lord, that they may turn from their sins and by faith call upon a Savior, this Jesus that we read about even here in the writings of King David. We give you praise, Lord, because you are worthy to be praised, and we rest, we rest in your control. May the name of Jesus be lifted high. We pray it, we ask it, and all God's people said, amen. You may be seated if you were seated. You can pick up your bowl of cereal now, and we will continue in our study. Verse 1, I love this. David says this, preserve me, O God, for in you I put my trust. He wants to make sure that we understand where his trust is placed, right? It literally means in you I take refuge. What you find here is biblical courage. He is saying that my courage is not in my own strength. My courage is not in my own ability. And again, we're talking about one of the strongest, greatest warriors ever to live. But his confidence was not in himself. He says, for you, I put my trust. And because I put my trust in you, Lord, preserve me. And Lord, you have promised that. He's, he's, he's reaffirming what God had already promised him, that if you trust in me, I will protect you. Lord, you've told me that if I place my trust in you, you will protect me. He declares it. Again, think about what David is drawing from here. Again, you go back to those early years, 1 Samuel 17, right? I mean, I think about David standing there in front of Saul, getting ready to go out and fight this giant, right? I remember as a kid learning the story in vacation Bible school, and there was always that picture, you know, in my precious moments Bible of, of this scrawny little shepherd boy, right, putting on the, the, the breastplate and has the shield and, and the sword, and there's this mighty giant that's standing out in the field. And Saul says, hey, you got to take all this stuff with you. If you remember his response, right? First Samuel, 
1737, this young shepherd boy says these words, the Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will rescue me from the hand of this Philistine. Saul said to David, go and the Lord be with you. David had seen the hand of God. David had experienced God's faithfulness. David had experienced what it meant for God to preserve him and protect him. He's drawing from God's faithfulness already in his life. No wonder that the words written from his son, Solomon, would be in Proverbs 3.25, do not be afraid of sudden terror nor of trouble from the wicked when it comes, for the Lord will be your confidence. Hear that this morning. For the Lord will be your confidence and he will keep your foot from being caught. I remember in seminary, our professors would consistently ask us, you know, you know, guys, where are you placing your confidence? Is your confidence in yourselves? Is, is your confidence in your church? Is, is your confidence in a paycheck? Is your confidence in your job? Is your confidence in your ability? He says, listen, understand, be careful where you place it. Because if it's not placed upon the Lord, then it's not promised. David says, I've seen it with my own eyes, and I've seen the hand of God. I've seen the faithfulness of God. Preserve me, God, as you have in the past, just as I stood before a lion, just as I stood before a bear, just before I stood before that ugly giant. Preserve me, O God. In you I put my trust. He says this in verse 2, O my soul, you have said to the Lord, you are my Lord, my goodness, there's nothing apart from you. Now, it's interesting here. I love this. In the Hebrew language, we find just in these first two verses, three different names being used by David, given for God. In verse one, if you'll look there, he says, preserve me, O God. It's the abbreviated form, El, Elohim. It's the name of God used in Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, Elohim, God, our creator, God created heaven and the earth. It speaks of, of God's power. It speaks of God's ability to, to, to be the creator God of this universe. He claims that in verse one. Well, then he moves to verse two. Oh, my soul, you have said to the, well, now he uses the word Yahweh. Not only Elohim, not only are you the creator God of this universe, you're also Yahweh, the covenant keeping God, the salvation God, the God who has promised to deliver. Next part of verse two, he uses a, a different word. He says, you are my Lord. That's the word Adonai. You are the sovereign one. You are the one in Control, Elohim, you are Yahweh, you are Adonai. You are the God who created it all. You are the God who has created a covenant before me to protect, to save, to rescue. And you are the God who is sovereign over it all. No wonder this is the same one who said in Psalm 27, one, the Lord is my light. The Lord is my salvation. Whom shall I fear? This is the conclusion that David has come to. You are God and you are my God. In you, I put my trust. I think it's safe to say, you know, we talk about all the time. I hear, you know, athletes will say, you know, you got to have the right perspective. You know, that, that there's an injury or if there's a struggle or you got to have the right perspective. It's safe to say that in the writings of David, you consistently find him having the right perspective. That, yeah, he's surrounded by his enemies. He's not protected. He's not promised the next day. But he's proclaiming the promises that have already been given to him. And so he's always looking through the lens of what God has already said, not his feelings. The lens that he's looking through is not necessarily his feelings or, or what he sees. It's what God has said. That challenges me because I know my feelings can lie to me. 
I know my senses can lie to me. I know what I see, what I feel, what I think can sometimes lie to me. They've got to be placed upon the backdrop of truth of who God is and who God has promised to be for me. I love this. Last part of verse 2. My goodness is nothing apart from you. And here's David acknowledging that everything I have that is good in my life comes from you. And it's not because of me. Actually, it's in spite of me. I think of this, and I immediately think of Ephesians, right? And I'm thankful, and I know you are too. I'm thankful to know that God's love for us is not based upon our goodness. In many ways, it's in spite of us. Let me remind you of what Paul says in Ephesians 2, just those first couple of verses. He says, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions. I was dead in my transgressions and sins in which you used to live. When you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient, all of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts like the rest. We were by nature deserving of wrath. But here it is. Here's the transition. Verse four, not based upon our goodness or our merit, but based upon his grace and his mercy, the transition of Ephesians two, verse four, but because of his great love for us. It's not anything you've done to earn it. There's not anything you can do to not receive it, right? It's because of his love for us. God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive, brought us alive with Christ when we were dead in our transgressions. It is by grace, not goodness, that you have been saved. It says, and God raised us up with Christ, seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. Here it is, Ephesians 2, 8, for by grace you have been saved through faith. It's not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Not of works so that no man can boast. We are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Here is David acknowledging, professing God, everything I have that is good comes from you. I love this. Prescription for suffering. In the midst of his questions and doubts and pain, what do you find him doing? Praising. In the midst of his struggles, emotionally speaking, what he finds him doing, praising. Lord, everything good I have is from you. Verse 3, as for the sanctuary on the earth. Each week, let me just say this. Each week, God stirs my heart to miss you guys more. And I speak, you know, on behalf of all of our team, our staff, our pastors. We, we talk about it each week of we can't wait till when we can come back together. And we look forward to that day. And, and, and as I read even this passage, like my mind goes to that. Listen to what David says in verse 3. As for the saints who are on the earth, they are the excellent ones. In whom is all my delight? Another translation to this verse says, they are the noble ones. Now remember what's happening here, right? This is a king talking about God's people. He's talking about surrounding himself with God's people. And notice what he says. He says, in whom is all of my delight? Uh, again, I love this. I mean, they're separated at this time. Here is David being removed from the fellowship of God's people. And yet here he is as he's reflecting upon God's goodness, as he's reflecting upon God's nature of who he is. And he's reflecting upon all the things that God has blessed him with. His mind immediately goes to people. His mind immediately goes to the ones that God has placed in his life. And he thanks God for them as we thank God for each other. And we look forward 
to when we can come back together. It's going to be hard not to hug. I don't know how that's going to go down. We'll figure it out. But verse 4 says this, their sorrows shall be multiplied who hasten after another God. Now, don't miss this great biblical warning here. Verse 4 says this. He says, hey, we seek the Lord because of this. But verse 4, those who seek other things, their sorrows shall be multiplied who hasten after another God. He says, the number of gods that you chase, lowercase g, run parallel to the number of griefs that come into your life. Don't miss this. If there's anyone who could speak into this, it's David, right? A man described as a man after God's own heart, sure, but a man who knew what it was like to be in sin, a man who knew what it was like to not be out of relationship with God, but to break fellowship with God. And in the midst of breaking fellowship with God, he knew what it was like to have the removal of joy, the removal of peace. And so if there's anyone who can speak into, hey, if you chase after other gods to fill those gaps, just know that the amount of suffering will run parallel with it. If there's anyone that can speak into this truth, it's David. And so he makes this declaration in verse 4. Their drink offerings of blood I will not offer. He speaks of separation, nor take up their names upon my lips. Not only will I not participate, I won't even speak of them. And this is speaking of consecration, right? In the world, but not of the world. And that's always been a struggle for us as believers, for those who desire the Lord, Right? to surround ourselves even with those who are like-minded and are also seeking the Lord. I remember as a young person being at a youth camp, and, and I've shared this before, and I remember how it penetrated my heart and, and how the pastor of the, the, the student camp stood up there, and he said, you know, he said, you know, we've been called to be ambassadors for the Lord Jesus Christ. And he said, my question is this. He said, when the world sees you, do they see a window or do they see a mirror? Do they see a window in which they see Christ, something that is not who you are, or do they see a mirror, a reflection right back to them of what they are? Yeah, you go to church and you show up on Sundays. Has your life been changed? Now, I look at this passage, and here's David who says, you know what? Yeah, their sufferings mean it will be multiplied in the gods that they, that they seek. I, I separate myself. How could I seek those things? I've tasted. My, my, I've been quenched by the God of this universe. He moves into that. Look at what he says here in verse 5. Oh, Lord, you are the portion of my inheritance and my cup. You maintain my lot. I love this. The lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. That's an interesting statement there. yes. I have a good inheritance. Again, we cannot forget the, the setting here. We cannot forget the fact that this is a king on the run. And yet here he is praising God for his inheritance. And I do not just believe he is speaking of a physical inheritance. He is speaking of his eternal inheritance. And he is saying that, Lord, even if it ends today, my lines have fallen in pleasant places. And we too can say the same, right? That if you are in Christ, if you know Christ as your Lord and Savior, regardless of what the struggle is today, you too can say the words of David that, hey, my promise goes beyond my present circumstances. My lines have fallen in pleasant places. I have a good inheritance. Hey, if that's the, the only thing that we need to fix our minds upon this morning, then may we rest in that alone. Jesus says, in this world, you will have trouble, right? Take peace, have peace, take heart. I've overcome the world. Look at what David does, verse 7. I will bless the Lord, he says, who's given me counsel. My heart also instructs me in the night seasons. 
I love this. Again, this is the same man who wrote the words of Psalm 119, 105. The word is a lamp unto my feet, a light unto my path. This was a man who understood that he was not just left alone to figure it out by himself. That this was a man who understood it wasn't that he was practicing a religion. He was walking in a relationship with the God of this universe. Yes, the creator God. Yes, the covenant-keeping God, but the sovereign God of this universe. And he rests in that. The Lord, if I'm in a cave not understanding where my next meal is going to come from, I rest in you because you have never failed me yet. You've given me counsel. My heart is instructed in the night seasons. That can be a difficult place to be sometimes. You wake up in the middle of the night and how quick your heart and your mind can go to so many different places. And I love that here is David acknowledging that in those night seasons, Lord, you've given me counsel. So set my mind, set my heart upon truth. And so he acknowledges God's guidance, but he acknowledges God's protection. Look at verse 8. And this all speaks into his relationship. Notice this here. This is all unique to those who have a relationship with God. And so here we are now on the other side of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Those who are in Christ can proclaim these promises, right? Hey, God, you give me counsel. You give me guidance. But now also this next promise You've promised protection. Verse 8, I've set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be moved. He says, because God has my back, I shall not be moved. The Lord is my God, whom shall I fear? I mean, that's what he's reiterating here. I don't know if you've ever been in a situation where you had someone who was bigger than you or or maybe a bully in, in your life. I remember as a kid growing up, I had a situation where um, I didn't even want to go to school. You know, it was one of those things where, you know, I didn't want to get on the school bus because I knew what was waiting for me and didn't want to get off the school bus because I knew what was waiting for me. And, and, and you know, my brother said, you know, you, you, know, you got to stand up. And I remember the day that happened. I finally looked at her in her eyes, and I told her that this was not go- I don't know if anybody laughed at that, but it really wasn't a joke. There's a true story there. The, the, the backdrop of that is I had an older brother, a brother who's six years older than I am. And so I, I realized this comes in handy. He's bigger than these other kids, especially this girl. He's bigger than this girl. So let me bring him to the bus stop. And let me tell you something. Things changed when I brought the person who had my back. I read this passage of scripture, right? And I see a man who's maybe, maybe hung up in a cave somewhere, right? A king who, who, who's been removed from his throne, removed from his palace, removed from all that he has known. And yet in that place, he says, God, you are enough because you've proven it, you've showed it, and I've experienced it. And so I proclaim it here that I'm not gonna be moved. You've got my back. You showed it when the lion came. You showed it when the bear came. You showed it when I stood before the giant. Why would it be different now? Maybe this morning, you just need to meditate upon Psalm 16.8. I've set the Lord always before me. He is at my right hand. I shall not be moved. Now, notice where he goes to right away. As his heart and his mind is proclaiming God's guidance, his counsel, as he's proclaiming God's protection, I shall not be moved. Notice what it does for him. Brings him great joy. Look at verse 9. 
Therefore, my heart is glad. Notice the words that are being used here. And my glory rejoices. My flesh also will rest in hope. I mean, just, just look at these words, right? Heart is glad. Glory rejoices. Flesh rests. How? How in the world is that possible in the circumstances that David is in? Don't miss what it's all linked to. And it's the last word of verse 9. It's the word hope. My heart is glad. My glory rejoices. My flesh rests, not because I'm comfortable, because he was anything but. Not because I'm secure, because he was anything but. Not because I have all the answers, and I know where the dots are going to connect, and I know what tomorrow is going to bring, and I know what my job's going to be, and my family's going to. He doesn't say any of those things. He says, I rest in you. My heart is glad. My glory rejoices because of my hope in you. And you can't fail. You would cease to be who you are if even one of your promises failed. So I rest in the hope that is you. And notice what he does here, man. He goes into verse 10, and really, I believe verse 10 is the connection to verse 1. Verse 1, he's crying out for God to preserve him, preserve him. Well, preserve him from what? I think verse 10 is the connection to that. Look at what he says. He says, for you will not leave my soul in Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. Again, this is considered one of the great Old Testament prophecies concerning the coming and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. We know that both Peter and Paul quoted this passage in the New Testament. Peter quotes it at his sermon at Pentecost. We know it Acts 2, verse 25. Paul quotes it with a little bit of change in Acts chapter 13. Let me give you the words of Paul. In Acts 13, verse 35, he says this. Notice the change that Paul gives to it compared to verse 10 of Psalm 16, the words of David. Paul says this, therefore he also says in another psalm, you will not allow your holy one to see corruption. For David, after he had served his own generation by the will of God, fell asleep. Notice that he died, was buried with his fathers and saw corruption. But he, capital H, but he, Jesus, whom God raised up, saw no corruption, verse 38. Therefore, let it be known to you, brethren, that through this man, capital M, through this Jesus, is preached to you the forgiveness of sins. What a promise. Here is David wrestling this, right? We know that, again, that this was, this was still not fully known, right? That, that, that David understood the prophecy given to him back in 2 Samuel, right? We understand the prophet given to him by the prophet Nathan. If you go to 2 Samuel, you've got your Bibles. We don't have time, but we're going to go there. Go there, 2 Samuel. You ain't got nowhere to be. You ain't got nowhere to go. Go to 2 Samuel, chapter 7. You may, I don't know. Verse 8, and let's just, remember the prophecy given to David. Listen to what it says. 2 Samuel chapter 7, beginning verse 8. I'm going to read down to verse 12. Now, therefore, thus shall you say to my servant David, this is the Lord speaking to Nathan. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the sheepfold, from the following the sheep, to be ruler over my people, over Israel. And I've been with you wherever you have gone. And have cut off all your enemies from before you and have made you a great name like the name of the great men who are on the earth. Moreover, I'll appoint a place for my people Israel and I will plant them that they may dwell in a place of their own and move no more, nor shall the sons of wickedness oppress them anymore as previously. 
Since the time that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel and caused you to rest from all of your enemies, also the Lord tells you that he will make you a house. Listen to what he says here, verse 12. When your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers, I will set up your seed after you who will come from your body and he will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. The prophecy is given to David that, hey, you're going to die. You will see corruption. There will be decay, but there will be one who will come that will be your descendant, your seed, who will establish a kingdom that will last forever. And in that promise, take hope. Take peace, and it leads him right into verse 11, right? I mean, he says, preserve me, preserve me in verse 1. In verse 10, he's proclaiming the prophecy here. He doesn't fully understand it, obviously, but he's proclaiming the prophecy even of the coming Messiah, and it leads him to verse 11. You will show me. Listen to the declaration he makes. You will show me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand, listen to this, are pleasures forevermore. Listen, you want to talk about meditation? You want to talk about setting our minds to truth against the, 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 our own emotions and against all the uncertain things in our world? You want to talk about fixing our minds? Fix them upon these things. Listen, you show me the path of life. In you is life, right? What does Jesus say? John 14, 6, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. In your presence is fullness of joy. Even if my enemies have surrounded me, right? What does he say in Psalm 23, verse 6? You've prepared a table in the midst of my enemies. Yeah, they're in the bushes and they're all around me. But guess what? We're dining right in the middle of them. You're quenching every need that I have right in the middle the battlefield and your presence is fullness of joy at your right hand are pleasures forevermore he's speaking of eternity he had been told that he like his fathers before him would see death i'm sure he's struggling with that but here is david proclaiming that even death is not the end that even death would not have victory because there would be this one who would come of his seed, who would establish a throne that would never be broken. The kingdom would be established forever. And he says, you give life in your presence is joy and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. I encourage you to take these Psalms to meditate upon to fix your minds upon them, to set our minds to truth, especially as our emotions and our feelings can take us into so many different places. To rest in who God is and who we are in him. That's the pattern that you see in every one of these Psalms. As David finds himself in the different circumstances of life, you find this consistent pattern of him proclaiming, God, this is who you are. This is what you've already done. And because of those things, I will rest. I will have joy. And I will wait, as he says, patiently upon you. What does it all point back to? Hope. And so let me say to you this morning again, it all comes back to Jesus. We're reading about him 3,000 years ago, 1,000 years before his birth. It's 
all linked there to this one who would come and do what David could not do, do what you and I could not do, live a life that would meet the standards of a holy God. Life without sin, a life of perfection, a life of holiness. And then willingly, he would choose to die in your place and in my place. And the Bible says for all those who come by faith, for all those who come in the name of Jesus and cry out to their father and say, God, uh, in him I rest in what he has done because I myself cannot do that. Religion cannot accomplish this. In Christ, I proclaim forgiveness, victory, salvation. So wherever you may be this morning, I pray that the hope of Jesus rests in your heart. And if not, the Bible tells us that we can come boldly, not to the throne of judgment, to the throne of grace. And in your presence is the fullness of joy. I'm going to ask you if you would join with me as we go to the Lord in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. And we thank you, Lord, that we can rest securely in the promises of your word. I thank you for David, Lord. I thank you for a man after your own heart that, Lord, allows us insight into his struggles, into his emotions. And, Lord, we thank you that in the midst of that, truth prevails, truth of who you are, and, Lord, now in Jesus, who we are, and the promises that come in that. Lord, we thank you that you are the saving God, the covenant-keeping God, the sovereign God of this universe. And we rest and the hope that is in you alone. Lord, I pray if there's one under the sound of my voice, Lord, who does not know you, Lord, may even this morning you speak to them in a way, Lord, that they surrender, throw their hands up, and cry out to a person, to Jesus. May you be glorified in and through all of this. We give you praise, and we pray it. In the one name by which we are saved, the powerful, almighty name of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. God bless you. May you have a wonderful day with your moms. Again, happy Mother's Day. We'll see you next Sunday morning.